0: This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you, and now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, and we are live with, again, the legendary agent, Michael Levine, He has been on the show before. I really highly recommend everybody check it out. Mike Levine, you have uh, 23 years DEA experience or 25 years, 25, 25. I mean, he's put criminals away for 15,000 hours of time, which I could, I mean, lifetimes on lifetimes on lifetimes and over 300 arrests, correct? Oh, no. more like, uh,
1: well, here's what happened. Yeah. Donald Goddard, New York Times books, Random House, Mm -hmm. commissioned Donald Goddard, a British writer and a New York Times stringer, uh, to write my biography while I was still a DEA agent. And the book book was published, the name of the book is Undercover. It's very difficult to find now. You know, it's out of print, and Goddard is dead. But in the writing of the book, DEA gave Goddard all these, the substantiating background on me. And they gave God, it, they told God it, that I put more than 3,000 people 3, in jail. Uh, and you know, as I start going through the records, it seems to me quite a bit more. But what's, you know, when you're counting, <laughs> uh, was it uh, Stalin who said, "One death is a tra- one death is a tragedy. A million deaths of Statistic. statistics. That's me. I got <laughs> plenty of statistics.
0: Yeah, and but what I really love about your stories, you've found you know so much more nuance, you know, going through your life and everything else to where it's like they're really not statistics. And they're you pointed out last time we talked how you put a couple cops away for literally just looking the other way. For many, many years, and then meanwhile, a hard hitter gets off like two or three years.
1: Or the 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 cops, as an enormous amount of police do, and both my sons were New York City policemen. I I speak, uh, I speak with a lot of experience working with the New York City police, working as a task force supervisor, uh, supervising New York City undercover cops. Uh, so I have an enormous amount of experience. So when I tell you that not only cops and DEA, if it becomes politically good for some politician, some prosecutor, for whatever the politics may be at any given time, they will go after a they will go after a cop or an agent with the kind of vehemence and the kind of vengeance that should be reserved for a war criminal. But they do, and I've been there these these two cops they happen to be part of an investigation I'm going to write about it if I live long enough <laughs> uh, and it, it they were part of an investigation of something that really attracted a lot of media and a lot of you know politics and there was politics and corruption and murder and so these two cops right they just. Gave this guy advice and gave him some investment uh, advice, <laughs> bad, bad investment advice. And they went away for quite a bit of time in jail for that. I had It was my, my case in a sense that a lot of cases were because I was a supervisor. And the case yes. was one in my group and I was made responsible for it. And the, the, the United States attorney who was running the case, who was a rabid dog going after this particular individual and these cops, like a rabid dog, <laughs> I remember telling the, my my division leader, I said, there's something wrong with this man. And my division leader said, Mike Levine, you just don't get along with anybody. He said, he's a perfect gentleman. This, this is what my, my supervisor said. And it ended up that the prosecutor was arrested for stealing our drugs and taking it. Oh,
0: God.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes, that's a a, a, a real, real case. And, uh, and that's kind of typical from the drug war, the, the mad, the crazy things that happened. The, I, I remember a guy walking in, an old timer walking into DEA on a day that uh, a DEA agent had, Killed his secretary in the office, who he was having an affair with, and then this particular agent looked up at the sky and he said, "All the squirrels are not in the trees," and which I don't know. Yeah, you, you really have to be a New Yorker. To, the squirrels are crazy as people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All the squirrels in, and and they're not. And in fact, that ought to be the title of the book: "All the Squirrels Are Not in the Trees." Whoa. But what? so.
0: He, that, uh, I'm sorry, the prosecutor who put the cops away that was later arrested. Yeah. Uh, two questions. Did his peers go after him as hard as he went after the cops? And two, oh, yeah. what happened to him? Oh, yeah. He was. He went to jail for
1: good. eight years, nine years, something like that. And at first, people tried to protect him because he was Rudy Giuliani's fair-haired boy. He was the head of the criminal division. Oh, So wow. they tried to protect him because... You know, it might it might have cast an aspersion on, on Rudy Giuliani. And that had to be protected at all costs because he was very political. He, You know, he mm. was he was heading next stop for the mayoralty of New York. And uh, it, it was a hell of an experience. I mean, it's got to be part of a book. It has to be. I mean, so much of this stuff, I shouldn't dare allow myself to die without writing it because all mm-hmm. you – all you guys out there, you deserve hearing this. You, you, and you probably won't believe it. You'll call me a, I don't know, conspiracy theorist, which is interesting. You know, uh, when I wrote Deep Cover the first time I came out, and I, I said, this happened. This happened. I don't care if I sell a book. I, want, I told the people who were betraying you, I told the people who were ripping you off for your trillion dollars in drug Uh, in drug taxes that you pay, and that's the truth, and really lying to you and and setting up a sham and a fraud and using the drugs to protect other interests, other other political interests. I just want America to know that. And they came after Mm me because I decided that I would follow my oath to protect the Constitution and the people of the United States, instead of some bureaucracies' secrecy, and they really went after me. Uh, and I think some one of your call, one of your listeners called and said about the the peanut butter sandwich, and mm-hmm. when I, I the book the book was deep cover, and when I came public, I came public on the uh, the Phil Donahue show, and I was in the green room. Phil Donahue about ready to go on for the very first public appearance associated with the book, Deep Cover. And one of uh, Donahue's people comes into the green room where I was busily and busy enjoying a, I don't know, some sandwich or another. And said, Mike Levine, there's a phone call for you. I not know anybody who knows him It turns out to be one of the bosses in DEA. And... He says the following, Mike, right now, there are 10 lawyers sitting in one big room reading every page of your book, looking for a reason to indict you. And I said, well, if you, if you were trying to intimidate me or frighten me, he said, you did a good job, but it's too late. I don't go back now. I can't go back now. Then he said, just one word, beware of a peanut butter sandwich. And, of course, the peanut butter sandwich was symbolic of, San, of DEA agent Barrio who died in a jail cell after allegedly swallowing peanut butter and it choked him. Uh, everyone in the Drug Enforcement Administration from that point on understood what a peanut
0: butter sandwich is,
1: and that's – I I didn't tell the story. I think your listener's name was Barn. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Did. Okay, but, but, but it's
0: a good story. So I mean, it it always. Yeah. I mean, you can repeat it a thousand times over. That's scary stuff to hear. That I mean, it's, it was it's very
1: code. It's very scary for me, <clears throat> and everything that followed really was scary. Uh, but I, I'm I'm glad I did everything I did. There's nothing I would go back on. Uh, a lot of people consider me. A lot of people in DEA consider me um, a traitor betraying the agency. You went off the reservation, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it's kind of F the people, F the Constitution. Your first loyalty is to a bureaucracy. Well, I've seen too much to believe in that. I just don't. You have to be a mindless little coward to live with that. That's my opinion you You right. have to be a mindless little coward to watch the criminality
0: that I watched and keep your mouth shut you, you, it's it's quite awful a lot and, to carry though i mean for you to step out i mean that's a lot to carry on your shoulders and i well, yeah. in, it I, was so
1: I, it was so bad that that was uh nineteen <clears throat> nineteen ninety 1990 when that happened. And then my son, New York City policeman, would be killed in 1991. Wow. And the DEA boss in New York, I was told, ordered the people not to go to my son's funeral because of me, because of my book.
0: And where do you go from there, from that? That's I don't just, know. That's but, not even petty. That's, that's just so deeply spiteful. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it really is. It, it, that's horrible. I mean, like your son has anything to do with you or your book, or I mean, no, my that son. kind of petty mindedness should just rot. You know, yeah. I hope he's having a miserable retirement and his life was a very uncomfortable for that I, kind of thought. He, he, he's
1: another guy with a, a legendary reputation for what I have no idea, but you know, you have in. President Nixon declared war on drugs in 1973. Mm-hmm. And that's when, well, actually, it was 1972. <clears throat> and then created the Drug Enforcement Administration in 1973. And the first, one of my first big bosses had an orientation meeting, and uh, Jim Hunt. Jim Hunt was a Marine captain on Normandy. Man got off a boat. Stood on a bunch of sand beach, people shooting at him. Balls.
0: Balls to the wall.
1: So he <laughs> said, This is the most important war our country has faced. Because at the time, the drugs were killing our troops more than the enemy. In, in, in Vietnam, they were dying, they were coming back stoned, the, the drugs were killing American children. So he thought, Jim Hunt thought, that we were anointed, that we were lucky, that we could be part of this army. He said, but if you're going to be a soldier in my army, you've got to produce. You have to go out and bring in dope and bodies in cages. If you can't do that, then you should be a square badge. You know what a square badge is? A a square badge Mm -hmm. is a security guard in New York City. In New York City, if you're some kind of a security guard, I don't know if that's still the law, you couldn't have anything that looked like a real badge. So it had to be a square badge. And they all wanted the DEA job. They wanted to be policemen. But there were square badges. Well, according to Jim Hunt, if you couldn't make stats, which is the equivalent to killing people in a war, he said, you're a square badge. Like if somebody else, get out of the way. Let somebody else do the job. And matter of fact, a good number of these guys went through their entire career without being able to point to one individual, one so-called enemy that they put behind bars. Not one. Their square, they square. In essence, they would call themselves DEA agents, but they were square badges. In that, all they wow. did, all they did, was follow people they were told to follow, uh, go break through doors to, to follow cars they would they only they showed up to work and did what they were told. And any security guard they did a job any security guard could carry out.
0: Anybody have would, you, Yeah. Ha, have you heard of the Pareto principle? Uh no. Demon. I'm wondering if it applied there. And it's essentially that twenty percent of a group does eighty percent of what happens.
1: Yeah, well DEA they it was ten percent. <laughs> That's the figure I was told. Ten percent. Ten of the 10% of these men, these frontline soldiers in this new, vicious war, uh, 10% of us were able to either buy dope, that is work undercover, or work farmers. And the rest wow. were square badges. They came into work okay. and waited for the 10% to give them something to work on. And they went off into their retirement like some sort of a hero or whatever you want to call that. I couldn't live with that. You understand I just couldn't live with it. Okay, let's you,
0: shift what? Let, let's shift to the uh 80s because we're starting to go into the 70s and 80s. You were a supervisor yourself in Argentina. So, how was that different for you because I can imagine being a supervisor and having to deal square badges under, underneath you might be a challenge. Well, not in Argentina.
1: In Argentina okay. in Argentina I had I was lucky to have a couple of people who worked for me that were extraordinary, okay. incredibly courageous. Um, uh, one's name was Max Pooley, and uh, Max was a amazingly courageous guy who, in spite of uh, me meeting cartel people who were suspicious of me, he went to Bolivia himself, Mac, to, to carry forward an undercover negotiation that I had started. And I told Max, this is going. This is rough. You know, we can't protect you there. There's nothing that we can do. In fact, you can't really protect any undercover agent. I don't care if he's in New York City or where, because from the moment the undercover agent is a loan, and that's part of the deal, in a car, in an apartment, wherever, in a in a in the rural part of a park, which happened to me, and with people thinking they're going to kill me and take my money, and me sensing it again, it all has to be in a book, I think. And Max went went uh, to Bolivia and survived really a ha- couple of hairy moments. Came back and continued to meet these people, and we brought and between the two of us we brought. This part of the case off successfully again. That's all in the in the book called The Big White Lie. The whole is this with Klaus Barbie. That he yes, was Klaus Barbie. Yeah, Max walked right into that, and the amount of credit this man deserves, I, I don't know. If anybody, Can you
0: tell that, us about Klaus Barbie. A little bit of history on him. Well, Klaus Barbie was a Nazi who,
1: with the help of Central Intelligence, escaped from Germany as part of Operation, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, know it, uh, Operation Paperclip, and established uh, a headquarters in South America and exported his knowledge, his military knowledge, and his intelligence knowledge to the drug traffickers as part of their security. So Klaus ba- And Klaus Barbie <clears throat> brought mercenaries from Germany and Italy into South America to work for him working for the drug traffickers. I at that time was conducting undercover negotiations with a man named Roberto Suarez, who would become to be known as the most powerful drug trafficker who ever lived. Cocaine, but the most the most powerful. At that time he was controlling maybe 90% of all the cocaine on the face of the earth from Bolivia. And Klaus what what happened was our undercover investigation into Suarez, where I actually met Suarez, I met his people, we negotiated, uh, that became successful. And we helped, We actually had help from the Lydia Gaylor Bolivian government, and they were allegedly, according to Central Intelligence, leftist. Now, whether they were leftists or not, as a DEA agent charged in this war, to go after these people. I didn't care what Lydia Gaylor was. She was giving me the help of the Bolivian government, secret police, everything to aid in my investigation. As a result of that, the, the uh, Klaus Barbie organization working for, they, again, they call them La Mafia Cruceña, the, the Santa Cruz Mafia, was a combination of all the top drug growers, all the coca growers in Bolivia who in turn was supplying most of the cocaine on the face of the earth. Uh, In those years, the coca leaf, the product, cocaine base would go to Colombia where they would turn it in. Colombia was just a laboratory, but all, all the prime materials, all the product was coming out of Bolivia. So in essence, by knocking down the Suarez organization, you knocked off, I don't know how long it would last, but, you actually knocked off the entire cocaine yeah. business, substantial. What was
0: Torres like? I mean, this is something that you know. None of us, you know, in the audience, we are not meeting these people, and they have like legends around them. Sure. I'm just curious what was what was he like as a a person when you interacted?
1: I interacted with him. He was a very charming man. He was called by the Bolivians El Comandante, the commander. He was extremely popular, and I'll tell you why. In the words of the uh, minister of the minister minister of agriculture, minister of the interior of Bolivia, whom I made the first drug deal with, he was working for Suarez. He said, "Roberto, Roberto feeds the people. Roberto is loved by the people. He feeds them, and that's the truth. That was the poorest country on the face of the earth at the time, and Roberto Suarez." was a source of life-saving income. No, the real source of life-saving income was Americans who were buying that scrap. Mm-hmm. That was it. That's the controlling factor here. But I met him. Uh, I spoke to him on the phone. Uh, I, have the, the recording, I have the recording of me and him uh, speaking to each other, uh, working out this drug deal, in fact, working out the payment I, that, for the drugs is what essentially got him indicted, but we couldn't even get him indicted. So mm. you have to read. This is too complicated for me to just tell like this. Let's say oh, sure. that, Yeah. Let, – let's just take it from me. Roberto Suarez was a central intelligence asset. He mm. had a license to do – he was protected from DEA, protected from me, and as was Manuel Noriega for a period of time because <laughs> – because politically, politically, these people were very useful in anti-communist activities. So in essence, what Central, central or, or the politic makers in our, in, in our nation, our leaders, decided was that uh, drug trafficking was a lot more beneficial to the world than communism.
0: So, so if you I had, yeah. I was going to say a question from the chat that's kind of tied in with... Um... Uh, Suarez and other people as we go in the last episode you had said you were fluent in Spanish were you able to interchange with the numerous dialects and mimic the accents to pull the local speakers
1: uh, what I mimicked really was a Puerto Rican accent because I grew up with Puerto Ricans and they would, they would say to me I was very very fluent but you could tell they, they couldn't peg what country I'm from. It's like listening to somebody doing a commercial from middle America. Well, what state is mm-hmm. it? You just, I was a guy
0: who spoke. Sneaky up- Canadians are like that.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. But, and my cover story was that I was half Sicilian and half Puerto Rican. Mm. So And that I left it open because they could hear uh, the Puerto Rican, what do you call it, Tonito what I'm saying is when I talk to the traffickers I spoke with, the, with an accent Puerto Rican accent uh, sometimes I spoke with uh, an accent that would be mistaken for uh, Sicilian a mixture I spoke enough uh, Italian that I could get by as someone who grew up with an Italian-speaking family, but not necessarily fluent, conversing. Wow. Uh, and gotcha. all you have to do is get over. Well, the important thing is if you're working undercover, you're building a case. So you've got to speak it well enough that they buy your act. And the fact that I'm still alive tells you they bought my act a thousand times. And Can
0: we go into that a little bit? Because I, I, I really love the mindset of how to deal with an undercover type of situation or how you might have. Were you a master at, at flipping the conversation onto them all the time? So like when you were talking, if you were showing enough interest in them, they might not worry so much about what you were saying because they were too busy bragging about themselves?
1: That's a great point. And if you read deep cover, you'll see that I identified in the t- and at the time uh, a man who was controlling billions of dollars of cocaine on the earth's surface. He was the head of, he had taken over, uh, Suarez, and here he is dealing with me, and he had this morbid fear. This was the eighties, this morbid fear of AIDS, and I mm-hmm. that registered. So we get into we get into conversational uh, conversational areas where I really had a worry, because. The, the support I was getting from DEA was so bad that at any moment they could tell this is, this is just BS. This isn't real. In fact, at one point, Roman, uh, who Roman was the, uh, the head of this whole corporation, said to me, you know, Miguel, he says, one thing I'm certain of is this can't be DEA. This whole thing is too stupid to be DEA. And I almost fell down inside of me. And that was the truth. But what they were making us do, but you have to read the book to understand how bad this was. They made us do stupid things. They made us do things that should have blown our cover. But one of the things that saved us was this psychological game I played with Roman. When he'd get into an area that was uh, nervous, I'd say something like, You know, that a friend of mine, Got AIDS from blah 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 whatever, and that was it. you know his 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 eyes would roll up like a slot machine, and we off we'd go. Where, where did, did you hear it? it? Where, did you hear it? You know, and, and I, I was I was doing that kind of thing to get him off the track. But you got to really go back in my life to my my father was a really very bad man. He's a professional boxer who used to beat up my mother, mm-hmm. and. Growing up in the Bronx, the biggest thing he did was leaving us in in the Bronx. But growing up as a kid, he uh, he recognized that we were growing up in a really tough environment for kids. And his message to me was, I think I'd been beaten up on the street or something. I don't remember exactly, but I'll never forget his words. His words were, if you're going to get into a fight, you know, that you're you're going to lose. You know that you're going to get your ass beat. See, you got to do everything you can to hurt him. You just have to hurt him. Whatever you, whatever you can do, bite his leg, bite his toe, you hurt him. Because if you don't, he's just going to come back and take it again and again and again. And that goes for everybody in life, kid. And so that's the mentality I had. Thanks thanks pop. Uh, as an undercover agent. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Uh, the only thing I knew for sure is that the destiny we all share is I'm going to die. And right. uh, and, uh, and I, I understood that uh, the watching old people die around me was a very painful, torturous, terrible thing. And so sure. if I could make my preference early on, I'd say – I wanna be the last to know. I want it to happen fast, I want it to be the last to know. So I was a willing gambler with my life. With with the with the belief that if that was what it's meant to be, if I was meant to die doing this, this is this is my preference. This is what I want. And I'm I'm gonna go out doing damage. Do you understand? I'm going out doing damage. Sure, and wow. you know, me do whatever you want, but I'm going to do them. I'm I'm going to make myself felt,
0: and oh, that's, that's pretty wise. Totally pretty- makes so much sense. Um, yeah. Back to the age thing. I I have to jump in and share a story, which I thought you might appreciate. Another of my guests was um, Jack Barsky, who was a KGB agent who lived undercover in the United States for 16 years, was never detected until that's- somebody. <laughs> Well, yeah. somebody rolled over or defected from the Soviet Union, and the name Jack Barsky was on the list. And so then they found him because of that. Otherwise, they never would have, most likely. Sure. But he quit. So while he was undercover, he quit the Soviet Union because he had a family, he had everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Guess how he quit?
1: Can't imagine.
0: He sent back word that he uh, contracted AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were so afraid of AIDS that they were like, okay, we're going to give the money of your salary to your family. Good luck, see ya. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, I get along All with right, you. I had well, to share yeah. that. <laughs> um, I did want to go forward to talk about um and I'm gonna mutilate the name, but uh Sonia de Atala.
1: Sonia Atala, yeah. Sonia Atala.
0: Now, you you worked with her, and she was a, a major figure, too. How did you meet her, or how did you get connected to her originally? And can you tell us about her?
1: Sure. I was transferred back from South America under investigation because they already – I had written a letter vis-a-vis the Roberto Suarez case to a news mm-hmm. uh, um, Newsweek magazine, to two journalists who had written an article about cocaine, the cocaine drug war, and how tough it is on America. And, and in essence, the, the letter I wrote said, you know, the entire thing is a fraud. I'm writing you. I wrote them on the uh, the DEA letterhead from the embassy in Buenos Aires. This is who I am. Uh, What I have is a credible story about, and in the article, they were talking about the Suarez organization, how powerful it is. And my letter said, we had them. But then within our government, people came out to protect them from DEA. And I was the man who ran the case. You want to talk to me? Well, the worst thing that you could imagine happened, which is typical with mainstream media They went right to the government with my letter. I deduced that that because I was immediately put under investigation and, and accused falsely of every crime there is, but I was under investigation. And I told, at the same time, there were contracts to kill me all over South America. Okay. And, and DEA asked, did I want to come out of South America? And I, my answer was no. I, I'm, I feel safer in South America being protected by the Argentine cops who work for me than I will coming back to the U.S. And, of course, they force-transferred me back to the U.S. Now I get back to I'm assigned as special operations officer, for the Drug Enforcement Administration. My job to be to run operations like the Suarez case globally. And the first thing that happens is, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of who it was, but they, they, they came to me, the cocaine desk at the time. And they said, we have the biggest case we have, we need an undercover agent to play Mr. Big. And we know you can do that. You're willing to do that. Now, I, I, I told the fellow who was running this operation, he said, You know, I'm under investigation. He said, Don't worry about that. We need you undercover. So that's how I got into it. They, 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 the, the investigation was they had Sonia Atala. Sonia Atala had, had been the chief salesperson of cocaine globally for the Bolivian government. She was selling drugs right out of the Bolivian warehouse. While doing that, the powers that be in Bolivia and some of the drug traffickers thought she had gotten too powerful and they were going to squeeze her out. How did they squeeze her out? The way, the, the way their trafficking used to work is she would deliver, say, a million or $2 million worth of drugs to a particular trafficker, or she would make a deal. And then the trafficker would pay her a million, two million dollars, whatever it was. Only this time they didn't, the Bolivian government didn't deliver. Now the trafficker, a man by the name of Papo Mejia, who uh, he he became infamous in the cocaine cowboy wars in Florida with, with Griselda Blanco. Uh, it was uh, and, and he was one of the most prolific murderers, I think, in history. Uh, and, and so Papo came... Papo set out to get Sonia. Sonia came, then turned to the DEA. Now, whether or not she did that under instructions from CIA or not, I don't know, but I know she was a CIA asset up until this happened. Now, she, now, my role. She she has this debt to Papo Mejia, a million, two million dollars, and. Uh, She's in the United States under protection, but that she's in hiding allegedly. The the uh, the Bolivian governments, the Colombians, they all believe she's in hiding someplace because Mahia wants to kill her. Uh, I assumed the role of her drug dealing partner lover. She's quite a beautiful woman. So and uh, so, it wasn't a hardship. No, it was not. <laughs> it, it was a hardship in a different way. You know, it, it, right, right. It, it wasn't. They assigned a DEA agent, Francis Johnson. who was a Puerto Rican girl to play the role of my sister, so that she could be in a house with us, where we were living together as boyfriend and girlfriend and drug dealing mm-hmm. partners. A luxury house in, in Tucson, Arizona, and that's the beginning of it. from?
0: That's when was that? Tucson. It was up in the up in, up, in,
1: up in Skyline Drive.
0: Was you know Tucson? I I was born and raised there. That that's okay. my hometown. So, uh, yeah, uh, Skyline Drive in the Fo- Catalina Foothills. Uh, Foothills, yeah. Um, the Foothills. So it was north of River. Uh, what was it, Cross Street? Oracle, I Campbell? I
1: can't remember, but I know that this particular house that we used, we rented, belonged to the newspaper publisher from Tucson. Uh, and mm. it was quite a luxurious place. And it was up as far as you could go in the mountain. There were no more houses behind us. And it was exquisite. I mean, it was just exquisite. Uh, anyway, St- Sonia and I, quote-unquote, live there. And that's the book, The Big White Lie. That's the story of The Big White Lie. It's a great That
0: is awesome. Now, you had mentioned Pablo Escobar was interested in her, too. And I didn't know, did you ever cross paths with him yourself? Yeah. I mean, her?
1: I didn't cross paths with Pablo, but Sonia did. Sonia used to sell him. Right. See, Sonia was a CIA asset selling, supplying cocaine to Pablo Escobar. Now, hold on a second. Think about that. A CIA asset is supplying this highly wanted, this terrible drug trafficker. He's getting his
0: merchandise from a CIA asset, Sonya. This is important, too. And this is for everybody watching. This is really important and why I'm trying to frame this, because the distributor is getting help from the CIA. But then there's also the other end that's going to be CIA coming up soon. Well, uh,
1: the, the the other side of the story is that uh, Pablo named her uh, La Reina con con la corona con la corona de nieve, and which means the Queen with the Crown of Snow, and mm. she the Queen of Cocaine. So she was named the Queen of Cocaine by Pablo Escobar. So you hear all wow. these. Now, here's allegedly the biggest drug trafficker who ever lived and all of this crap. And he's getting it from the queen of cocaine, who is a CIA asset and a DEA informant at that point.
0: I have an off-the-wall question that popped in my head the other day when I was thinking about the interview. Sure. And the career spans for these folks are not that long in actual calendar time, are they? It seems like... Three to five years, they're either killed or prison or, or am I it's wrong a, on that?
1: It's a great point, Eric, and I'll tell you why. Because we spend tens of millions to get each individual. And the mayor of Medellin, Colombia, once said he, he didn't understand America. He said the fact is, and everybody should know this, that if you lined up every major drug trafficker and you shot them down, Tonight, they'd be replaced by morning. And behind and behind their replacement are, are an endless number of replacements that will take their place. But here we are, naming the devil of the month, convincing most Americans that by spending a, a gazillion dollars to destroy this man or get that man, and it becomes like a movie-esque hunt. Yeah, it's a con. It's a tremendous con job. I, there's an article. If any of you uh, listen really serious, it's I wrote and it's out there on the internet. It's called "Mainstream Media Drug War Shills." Mainstream Media Drug War S H I L L.
0: I'll put that. I'll put that in the show notes because you wrote another one about kidnapping all over North. Yeah. Um. And we're getting to it. <laughs> I, I want to definitely keep this, uh, you know, story going because I, it's so fascinating. And you know, so many details. Now, is this a good time to talk about Kiki Camarana? Sure. Sure.
1: Anytime. Kiki Camarana is outrageous. What was done to this man Ooh. by his own people, right? the people backing allegedly backing him up? It was. One of the things about the Kiki Camarena murder, for those of you who don't know, Kiki Camarena was, like me, he's an undercover, but he was stationed in Guadalajara, Mexico, and uh, he went to pick his wife up for lunch one day, and he got picked up by the state police, Mexican state police, brought out to a ranch and tortured to death by traffickers. They had a uh, a doctor there to keep him alive. What they did to him was grotesque, and they recorded it have his death cries recorded. Among the things they did to him was to take a tire iron, heat it white hot, and insert it in his rectum. Now mm. myself and one myself, I was undercover partners with a man named Jorge Urquijo, George Urquijo. We were he was customs agent, I was DEA in the deep cover case. Uh, I was assigned to the deep cover case, took over uh, a, a guiding undercover role. George became my partner, undercover partner. And George George found while, while uh, we were sent to Panama, George and I, to get the money launderer who was the, the chief money launderer for uh, the Medellin cartel for the Bolivians. Well, George and I had dealt face-to-face with this guy setting up a 17-ton drug trafficking deal. And, of course, if you read the book, it's just too much to tell them when, when selling. But it, what, then, what then proceeded to happen was that our government, DEA, and the Attorney General of the United States, Edwin Meese, blew our cover. He told the Attorney General of Mexico that these people were going down. And some of them were government employees of Mexico. He warned him of our undercover case before it came off. Not, not like uh, uh, that, that CIA agent who sat in offices. We were, we were in the jungles. And he, and the Attorney General of the United States warned them about blew our cover. And that's in the book. That's in the book, The Cover. Uh, George found between the people in DEA who were close, let's say close, associating with the people who we know were instrumental in the whole thing being a fraud, the whole undercover. And then George found that that man himself, the DEA boss in Mexico, was meeting with them, having dinners with them where, the, where the, the chief topic was cooperation in the drug war. Well, cooperation in the drug war with who? With the people who murdered one of your agents? How can you see? It was so mind-boggling. Really, Eric, that's when I decided, and I told some of these people, I said, I'm going to make you famous. And for a short period of time, till Saddam Hussein <laughs> invaded Kuwait, <laughs> The book was on the New York Times bestseller list, and I went to, and then boom, American, the American psyche went elsewhere. It went to the Middle East, right. And the, the whole drug war was forgotten, and I was just knocked me out. The whole thing knocked me out. George Oho, he quit. He said, "I'll never do another undercover case." The two of us were really in danger in Panama. They sent us down there to get uh, to, to identify and arrest the money launderer. Remberto Rodriguez, his name was. When we got there, the DEA guy who was in charge of the Panama office said, who, who? Now we had just been told by DEA headquarters to go to Panama, that they're ready, waiting for us to come and physically identify him because we met him face to face and dealt with him. Now we get there and we're told, we don't even know who he is. We had no idea you're coming. It was so surreal. Scared the crap out of both of us.
0: So that your or, own organization—that's organization, right is dirty. dirty.
1: And that's when I said I have to. I have to put this in a book. And then I became my father's son. <laughs> if, I, if I'm going to die here in Panama, I'm going to make sure I do some damage. I'm going to tell this story somehow. I'm going to tell this story, and that is deep cover. Wow! Wow! So it was so wasn't only
0: CIA, yeah, too.
1: The CIA, DEA, uh, I accused the Attorney General Edward Meese of blowing our cover, which is every kind of felony there is. And Meese is somebody who sued anybody for libel, but I didn't get sued. Uh, in fact, a, after I came out, uh, a famous journalist or well respected journalist, Elaine Shannon, wrote an article and identified him as the man who blew the, blew the uh, case. Who telephoned Mexico and warned him about the undercover case? Now it became enough of a public record that I put it in the book. So you have the Attorney General of the United States blowing our cover, and I put it in in deep cover. And what happened? Nothing. Nothing. You get reactions like, "Well, we already know that." There's the American reader. Oh, well, we already know that. It's like, "Well, great, man." You like. You. <laughs> what? what would happen World War Two. what happens if you, you you tell you you guys what Hitler's doing what his plans are well we already know that <laughs> uh, the American spirit can't be can't be Eric but it is
0: okay this leads forward and I don't know I'm getting a weird echo but okay it's gone um, this leads forward to Gary Webb and I know that you appeared on Montel Williams with Gary oh, yeah. Webb. And you've written about Gary Webb. Well, at least, you know, I, I think that you, your piece was read at his um, memori- ah, memorial. Or you yeah. read it as a memorial. I wrote something. Is anyone,
1: I wrote an article. Is anyone apologizing to Gary Webb? And I think uh, that was read at his memorial, which makes me feel good.
0: Oh, for sure. Can you talk about how you got to know Gary Webb and how your paths crossed? Because I don't know if you worked directly with him or just were affirming a lot of what he said. No, what
1: happened? What what really? What happened was Gary Webb <laughs> and I were brought onto the Montel Williams show, and that's <laughs> the first time I met him. I knew I knew about him, and we we shared a limo. My wife. My darling wife, uh, Gary Webb, myself, and the uh, I forget his name, the fellow from Accuracy and Media, we're all in the back. We all CIA, the-
0: CIA, CIA. Put a put put a stamp on his head. CIA. And, that guy, and,
1: you know. <laughs> and, but I I heard him say to Gary Webb, "We have plans for you." And mm-hmm. Gary got all choked up. Mm-hmm. And after after he left. I had well. I had several talks with Gary, and I, I cautioned him. I said, "The American public is not going to pack you up. The American public is not going to assist you. The American public is not going to hire you when you when they destroy your career, Gary." They, you can't. The thing you can't do, in my opinion, is say that they're targeting, that the CIA is targeting the black community, because. The drug trafficking doesn't work that way. I can't target anybody. I could have 50 tons of cocaine. I can't target a community. Where the drugs are going to go is where people (laughs) offer money for it, where people buy it. It, It's a a supply-demand-guided phenomenon. There is no – but other people having an interest – in inciting this black-white war type of stuff. They want to do this. They wanted to use Gary Webb, and they did so successfully as proof that the black community was being targeted for drugs. You can't do that. It just doesn't, even if you want to, it doesn't work. Going all the way back to the 60s, uh, the the, uh, Italian mafia had an edict that you don't sell Heroin to a white man, so their their edict was you only sell to blacks, but didn't really work.
0: my no, because then the blacks would just resell it to somebody else. It doesn't matter. It just <laughs> it's like stupid. It's stupid. But he had,
1: but uh, they had half the country believing this crap. You can't do it. it doesn't work. And I used to sit and watch drug dealing organ drug dealing places, markets like supermarkets, working. And what you'd see is 90% of the people coming out there, buying crack cocaine, buying everything, were white people with jobs. come Like in New York City, we had one of the biggest street supermarkets of drugs, 109th Street. New York Times wrote an article about it, and we sat up and watched the, the place, and you could get the license plates. You could tell a lot about the customers, and the customers mostly were middle and upper income White people with jobs. Now they came from New Jersey, they came from Massachusetts, they come down to this place to buy drugs. And that's the way the drug market goes. They come in, they're coming, people who wanted a.
0: <laughs> You're describing a free marketplace in capitalism, you know that. Exactly, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. that's what it is. This other, they show me, you know. <laughs> Just show me. If you talk about conspiracy theorists, that's conspiracy theory because there's no real science behind that accusation. It just doesn't work. So I told Gary Webb, I told Gary Webb, you're gonna you're making it easy for them to attack your credibility, and that's exactly what happened. They took mm-hmm. his article and the, and the fact that it was used that he targeted blacks. They were targeting blacks, and they discredited him. And all the newspapers lined up. Uh, supporting the government's position that this, this is BS, the article is BS, because in a sense, in a sense, it was. You can't target, but the rest of it was right. Central Intelligence was supporting drug traffickers. There's no doubt about that. In fact, they admit it. In fact, That's I put a video true. up on I put a video up on YouTube with the head of DEA, Judge Bonner, looked into the camera and said, "There's no other way to say it. They are drug traffickers." Central Intelligence. Now all these people say, "Oh, I can show, I can prove, I can prove that CIA is <clears throat> dealing drugs." Where do you have to go when you had the head of DEA saying it on 60 Minutes? <laughs> Where? What else do you need? You know, people would call me. I can do this, Levine. I can, I can show you proof that they're. I don't need proof. They've already discredited themselves. They've already been proven as drug traffickers. I wrote articles about uh, how, how they should be indicted. And the names of the people were, what I'm, try, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the agent's name, the DEA agent who was in Venezuela when the Venezuelan National Guard got caught smuggling a ton of cocaine into Florida. And the first thing they said is, well, we're working for CIA. And that turned out to be true. Not only did it turn out to be true, but the the DEA chief had told them, that's drug smuggling, you can't do that, but they did it anyway. (laughs) And people are are still looking for proof. You you have all the proof you need. Now we're looking for Americans who wanna take some kind of political action. I don't say take violent action, but take some political action. You know, demand for these people being indicted in that particular case. uh, The CIA officer's name was McFarland. He ran the drugs into the. He personally guided the drugs into the U.S. And he allegedly was forced off the job and then rehired as a (laughs) as a consultant. He's like, you guys, come on, man, you guys are worse than the mafia. (laughs) Worse than the mafia in the sense that the mafia at least has to pay the penalty of their screw-ups. CIA doesn't. They they have a license to do what they want.
0: What about Gary Webb's outcome? Because I will say a lot of people find it very strange to commit suicide by shooting yourself twice in the back of the head. It's not that strange. It, It happens. But that's not the point.
1: The point is... You're going to kill a man who absolutely represents no threat to you, and Gary Webb was so discredited and 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 so castrated professionally that it makes no sense. I mean, they're not that stupid an agency. They will kill. I know. I mean, they will kill to def- to protect something that they feel that's the best way to do it. Get rid of the get rid of the problem.
0: Yeah. So you're saying he was already resolved then in their mind.
1: Oh yeah. I mean not worth not worth killing or having anything to do with his death, you know. That's crazy.
0: Just that's to- interesting. Have you t- Okay, I'm right now I have a guest coming on Thursday who we're going to be talking about the son of Sam Colt, which yeah. is right from near where you grew up, right? I mean, uh, oh, Yonkers, yeah. 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 I remember
1: calling when he was He was going hot and heavy. I was his supervisory officer. And it dawned on me that, you know, they've got to start looking for parking tickets around these shooting areas. And I called up. They had a 24-hour hotline. And I said, you know, this is Mike Levine. I'm a DEA supervisor. I said, have you guys uh, gone out and looked for traffic tickets or parking tickets in those areas? See if there's a pattern, if there's that. Later, I, I was told that that's how they got him. Now, whether whether they did it because of me or not, I'd like to think. Yeah, wow, I did that too, but <laughs> but that's well.
0: That, yeah, I was going to say that
1: I know the case very well.
0: Yeah, well, there was an author who wrote a book, and again, you know, we're starting to spin out into the conspiracy area. Um, called Ultimate Evil, it was Maury yeah. Terry, and you know, it sounds like Gary Webb was a little obsessed and I'm not trying to besmirch his name, but it's like an author, he's got a story, and and the story ultimately consumed him. Maury Terry, it could be said about him. I've had Tom O'Neill on, who did um, Charles Manson, the CIA, and things like that. And yeah. he has said, you know, twenty over 20 years of his life were completely consumed with that story every minute. What is that about people? I'm just curious if you might have any thoughts that, you know, getting a story like that and then having the story consume them.
1: Well, you're looking at one who, for a period of time, that was my story. I, I lived it, though. I lived through the crime. I witnessed it. I was a witness in the case. Uh, sure. So it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was like, you know, I'm trained in conspiracy. I put thousands of people in jail for the crime of conspiracy. So when a journalist calls, well, Michael, I mean, a conspiracy theorist. Well, you're right. But a well-trained conspiracy theorist, and as such, I see a crime that I could testify to, that Ocijo could testify to, that uh, the, the DEA agent in Venezuela could testify to. You want to carry, How far you want to carry it, yes, it's a conspiracy investigation, and it's a solid one. People should go to jail. But a conspiracy theorist? I don't know what you're talking about by conspiracy theorist. And sure, sure but I'm called a conspiracy theorist because fact is, I kind of got obsessed with the story, obsessed with the notion that I, here I could lay it out in flaming, almost like a video, and tell you with witnesses, dates, and times uh, exactly what was done to you, exactly what was, how you were betrayed, exactly how your own government defrauded you. And... I'm a witness. I was there. Nah, it's a waste of time. They, uh, you, would, you would think uh, Congress, if Congress was anything more than a rubber stamp, uh, would have called someone like me in and witnesses and, started and, and called for a grand jury investigation of everything I said, because I wasn't talking about a theory. I'm talking about a specific crime. You read deep cover. You read the big white line. I name people. These are crimes. I'm I'm accusing the people I name in the book of betrayal of the American people, uh, every kind of betrayal and treason that you can think of because that's what they did, and I couldn't stand it. So, yeah, maybe for a period of time, I'm long past that now. You know, I I come on. It's like my visit to the psychiatrist sitting here telling you – (laughs) <laughs> these stories this is reality yes doctor this is what happened what am i gonna do <laughs> but i'm i'm well beyond that uh, obsessed i just at this point i had to stop caring i had to stop caring
0: and i did but i was just thinking though you could always answer if they call you conspiracy theorists you could say no i'm a conspiracy architect get it right That's a good way to put it.
1: I am a conspiracy (laughs)
0: architect, a very good one. On that note, this has been phenomenal. Again, I'd love to have you back to just do a straight Q&A with, um, you know, people putting in questions to you and just answering and, you know, letting the um, chat participate if you'd like to. Sure. Because uh, your stories are amazing. And I know that everybody who's so much smarter than I am will have just stellar questions for you for things that I've overlooked.
1: Okay, let me say, para la gente de habla hispana, un saludo especial. Mi gente. Ustedes son mi gente. <laughs> anyway, I'm talking to the Spanish speaking people out there. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I assume it's wonderful. Audiencia especial. <laughs>
0: Michael, thank you so much. Thanks Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.